Thanks for joining us here at the Light San Diego podcast. This sermon was recorded in Encinitas, California. For more information, please visit our website, lightsandiego.com. Well, today we're going to be looking at a passage of scripture um, that's a little hard to interpret and maybe even at a certain level offensive. And so before we dive into that and navigating these these texts, my hope is to kind of give you some tools. What, what do you do when you come across the Bible and you read a verse and you're like, man, I don't, how does that fit with my idea of God and the world and theology? Um, and so I just wanted to give you, before we dive into this passage, just some things to think about. Um, just five things real quick. Number one, the Bible will offend you. The goal of Bible study and interpretation, also known as hermeneutics, is not to get the Bible to, uh, to say what you want it to say. The Bible will be offensive. If this is the Word of God, and not the creation of uh, just a human imagination, there's going to be things that we have to learn to, to grasp. Martin Luther says that the gospel cannot be truly preached without offense. Um, and so again, that's not the goal of Bible interpretation is to get it to unoffend us. Rather, we welcome God's word to challenge us. But number two, the Bible can never mean what it never meant. So there is something we have to do in figuring out what were the biblical authors intending to say. Number three, the best tool to interpret the Bible is the Bible. Uh, so rather than just running towards uh, commentaries and dictionaries and a, or a podcast, uh, we need to let Scripture interpret Scripture. Fourthly, uh, the greatest hermeneutical lens we have is Jesus Christ, meaning that because in Matthew 5 we know that all Scripture points towards Jesus as the end goal, meaning we can look back at all of Scripture through the lens of Jesus and lastly, it's okay to hold things in tension. It's okay uh, to, to read things and ask questions and to, and to uh, dig and to be able to look uh, deeper and realizing that as much as the Word of God is for every person, every age, every education level, and every culture, it, it was also written over 2,000 years ago in different languages, in a different culture, and that that sometimes takes work to be able to uncover what the meaning is behind God's heart, the authors. So this is just five things just to kind of keep in your pocket that we're going to be using today uh, to be able to work through this passage. So Colossians 3, I'm actually going to go back and read verse 10 and 11, but then we're going to be 17 to the first verse in chapter 4. It says this, Put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Verse 17 says, Whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. 
Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not embitter your children, or they will become discouraged. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything and do it, not only when their eye is on you and to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart, as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs, and there is no favoritism. Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair, because you know that you also have a master in heaven. So again, there's, there's some wording and topics in here that are difficult uh, to wade through. And so my hope is over the next few minutes that this would, uh, through the Holy Spirit, just illuminate God's heart, um, what the, the words are truly trying to communicate, and so four things that I want you to consider uh, in this passage. Number one is the audience. Number two, the idea of accommodation. Number three, abolition. And fourth, attitude. Audience is the contextual nature of the gospel. Accommodation is the missional nature of the gospel. Abolition is the subversive nature of the gospel. And attitude is the rewarding promise of the gospel. So we're going to work through these things and we're going to spend a lot of time on number three. But number one, we have to understand the audience, the contextual nature of the gospel. Who were these people? When was this written? One of the most insightful things for me in studying this passage is understanding that this letter is set within the ancient Greco-Roman period that was largely influenced by Greek thought. There's a really famous philosopher by the name of Aristotle who wrote about these things called household codes. And these household codes gave a framework for how ancient people understood family. And so these household codes consisted of three things, husband and wives, husbands and children, and masters and slaves. And so what you see here is Paul giving commentary on something that was already existing within the culture. He is, in a certain way, critiquing the household codes that were common in Greco-Roman culture by saying, now that you've been raised with Christ, this is how you are to operate within the family structure. And understanding that family structures change over time in different cultures. And so the this instruction was given with this framework of, oh, this is how it always was. Now, without Christ, the husband-wife relationship looked like dominance, misogyny, abuse. Uh, the husband and father, I'm sorry, the father relationship to children uh, looked more like property. Had very little care, if any care at all, for children. Um, the slave and master relationship was prominent. Um, one third of the Greco-Roman world uh, were uh, slaves. One, uh, sorry, 90% of Rome itself was built on a population of slaves. But it's important to understand that how we understand slavery today looks a little bit different uh, within the ancient world. Um, in the ancient world, 
Uh, slavery can be translated as slave, servant, or bondservant. These are all different phases and types of slavery in that there were people who would choose slavery because it allowed them to have a certain status within a family, within society. And in ancient culture, you were able to work off, out of your slavery. And certain people would choose to stay within that and they would be called a bond servant. Oftentimes they'd have a piercing signifying that they have chosen to stay with their family. Now, our understanding of slavery, of the objectification and the dominance of any sort of human uh, is clearly wrong in the Bible. And so we find ourselves, though, in an audience that this was a part of normal life. That many of the people sitting in this house church, I mean, think about this, were slaves. And there were slave owners sitting in the same room. And so it's important to understand that what Paul is doing here with his audience is he's creating a different framework, literally writing to both slaves and slave owners, husbands and wives, who come out of a culture with very uh, strained relationships. And he's saying, okay, within these family structures you know, you are to operate differently because you've been raised with Christ. And what we're going to find here is there is, there is both an instruction of the heart, but there's also... Uh, uh, an instruction of how to undo some of these evil systems that our world has created. But it's important to know that our audience is coming out of this understanding of Aristotle's household clothes, that he's talking to believers, people who follow Jesus, slaves, masters, husbands, wives, children, parents. He's talking about, okay, this is now how you live within this Greco-Roman family structure. Number two, I want to talk about this idea of accommodation. And this is what I would like to think of as the missional nature of the gospel. Uh, Douglas J. Moo, who wrote a great commentary on Colossians, says this, People in the Greco-Roman world were suspicious of new religious movements, particularly ones that proclaimed revolutionary ideas such as the equality of all people. Paul and the other New Testament writers urged Christians to respect the hierarchical structure of the Greco-Roman household codes as a means of defending the new faith from charges that it was intent on overthrowing existing social structures. And so what that means is if you notice the first verse that I read was the most offensive for the ancient culture. So I want to ask you a question. What was the most offensive verse that I just read to you? Is it about slavery? Is it about wives submitting to your husbands? Um, and there's a good reason why those should offend us. We'll talk about that in a moment. But I just want to let you know, the most offensive verse that the Colossians would have read from that passage is that there is no more Jew, Gentile, slave, free, man, woman. That This idea of common value because we've been made in the image of God found in verses 10 and 11 would have been the most offensive verse that they would have heard. It wasn't the idea that wives should have submitted to husbands or that slaves should submit to masters. It was rather the idea that in God's system that there is no hierarchy, that there is no difference in value systems. That's Paul spends most of his time here instructing 
how masters are to remember that they have a master and they will be treated accordingly. I mean, this, these things would have been culturally highly offensive. And so why in this is Paul making allowance um, for these things? And, and the idea here is what's called accommodation theology, meaning there is a great mission called the gospel. And in order for the gospel to go forward, there are things that you accommodate within culture. Let me give you an example. A couple years ago, I was in the country of Jordan, spending time with missionaries there. I was spending time and there was some women missionaries there and they live their life uh, wearing uh, head coverings to cover their hair when they go out. They'll never walk alone on the streets. Not because these are biblical convictions they have, but because they're missionaries, meaning they are accommodating the culture so that the gospel may gain a hearing. I'm going to say that again. There, you accommodate the culture so that the gospel, the primary mission of God, may gain a hearing. And that's why this, this passage that rubs us so wrong, and rightfully so, there was a sense of accommodation in these household codes that exist. Live in them in such a way that you're not going to disrupt the gospel, but rather further the gospel. Behind me is the Carlsbad Power Plant. And a few years ago, the company that owns it, NRG, uh, put a proposal that was approved and they built another power plant in Carlsbad that's incredibly more efficient. A matter of fact, in a matter of 10 minutes, they can generate 500 megawatts of power. And this power plant that was built in the 1950s and later upgraded in the 70s would take hours to generate that same amount of energy. And so you have two systems, one that's more eco-friendly, it's more efficient, and one that is more ancient and archaic and doesn't work as well. But what's fascinating is once the new power plant was built, the question and the pressure began to be like, well, how do we deconstruct the old system? And everyone was kind of hoping for this like huge implosion of that large tower. But after experts looked at that, what they decided would be the best route is to little by little deconstruct the tower and the power plant so as not to create more ecological harm. And I think that's a great, a visible picture of what Paul's doing here. There's a new system. Because of the gospel and the kingdom of God, there is divine dignity reclaimed for all humanity, regardless of status. And at the same time, you're still living in a world of an old system. And what Paul is saying is that that system is being deconstructed, but it's just taking time. In the meantime, we want you to live in a certain way that's going to allow the gospel to advance. Which really brings up a really, really important question, though. In this passage, what is being allowed, what is being accommodated, and what is being abolished? Notice, we're, no one's making an argument that children should stop honoring their parents. But should wives still submit to their husbands? Is their room for masters and slave relationships. And so this is, this is where there's a tricky passage because there's certain things that are allowed 
there's certain things that are being accommodated and, and I should say adjusted. And there's certain things in here that in the kingdom of God, they're subversively being abolished, which leads to our third point, is this third point of abolition, the subversive nature of the gospel. So assuming that most of us would agree that children should submit to their parents and honor their parents and that parents should treat their children with respect, I want to spend time on the other two, husband and wife relationships and master-slave relationships. Both of these have uh, been had a lot of focus and spotlight within our culture in the past uh, year and years. And so what do we do with a passage like this? This is what I would like to propose. In order to understand what Paul is saying here in Colossians, we have to take a step back and see what he also says in Ephesians and what he also says in a book called Philemon. And the reason why is those three books were written at the same time. I'm not just grabbing obscure books that Paul wrote. These books were literally written from the same place, the same jail cell to relatively the same group of people. And when you step back and look at Paul's other work that would have been circulated amongst the same people, we can actually begin to understand what Paul is trying to say here by looking at these specific things. So what I would love to do is turn our attention to Ephesians chapter 5, when Paul spends more than just one verse on the husband and wife relationship. Notice what he says. He says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to yourselves to your husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church's body, for which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands and everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And then continues to lay a, a larger responsibility on the husbands for how they love. And so the question is, should wives submit to their husbands? I think the answer to that is yes. Because if you look at the verse before, submission is not something that wives do. Submission is something that Christians do. It says that submit one to another out of reverence for Christ. And so are wives supposed to submit to their husbands? Yes, but also according to the opening verse, husbands are supposed to submit to their wives. And so to do away with the idea of submission is, is, is larger than doing some of the the heart posture and the humility that is found within followers of Jesus. The problem isn't submission. The problem is the misuse of submission. Because Jesus himself was submitted to his Father. And so when we look to the Trinity as our source of relational order, what we do here is there, there are definitely differences. I'm not making a case that's saying that there's no differences, there's, there's not different roles. There are different roles within marriage. But submission is something that is to be carried by every believer. And so, wives, if, if that is triggering for you, like, what do you mean I have to submit to my husband? I would just encourage you, this is not the posture solely for women. This is the posture for Christians, for men as well. There are moments where I find myself submitting to, to Jen, the Holy Spirit speaking to her and through her to me that has brought flourishing and life to me and vice versa. 
I think what's unfortunate, and again, this would not have been alarming in a culture 2,000 years ago. I think what's alarming is how these words have been twisted to create a dominance from husband, which is why Paul spends most of his time in Ephesians 5 encouraging husbands on how to love their wife in a way that Christ loved the church. So if submission in the household, and again, this is specific, this is not man and woman, this is husband and wives. If submission in the household is being demanded, if it's being extorted and, and without the picture of a cross-shaped self-sacrifice, then the point is being missed. You see, submission points wives to love their husbands, not because they're awesome, and, and hopefully they are, but because God is awesome. Husbands, we submit to our wives. We love our wives in the way that Jesus loved us, which is ultimately being nailed up on the cross. And so I don't think that Paul is trying to abolish the idea of submission, but rather he's trying to reshape the idea of submission to look like Jesus rather than the dominant narrative of the culture. The next passage that's it's difficult to deal with is how much in Colossians Paul talks about this relationship between masters and slaves. He spends more time talking about that than parents and children, husbands and wives. Why? Well, because there was a situation going on in the church in Colossae that he was addressing. How do you know that? Well, because there is a letter called Philemon. It's the shortest letter that Paul writes. And it is addressed to one person, Philemon, about a slave that he owned named Onesimus and the tension that they had. So the long story short is this. Onesimus was Philemon's slave and Onesimus stole something, did something wrong and fled for his life. And somehow he found Paul. They were assuming we're both part of this house church and found Paul all the way in Rome, hundreds of miles away. And while he's there, becomes a follower of Jesus. This is Onesimus, the slave, and becomes an aide to Paul. And so what Paul does is he actually sends Onesimus back to Philemon with the letter that he wrote. And he urges Philemon not to take Onesimus back and punish him under Roman law, but to treat him under the new understanding of the kingdom of God. I want to read you a few of these verses. Philemon, verses 6 and 7, says, Paul saying, I pray that your partnership, this word koinonia, with us in the faith may be effective in deepening your understanding of every good thing we share for the sake of Christ. And so Paul is saying, is he's telling Philemon, there is a new brotherhood, a new fellowship, a new koinonia. And in verse 15, he says, perhaps the reason he, Onesimus, was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back forever. Listen to verse 16. No longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. He is very dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a fellow man and as a brother in the Lord. So if you consider me a partner, again, that word koinonia, welcome him as you would welcome me. If he has done you any wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will pay it back, not to mention that you owe me your very self. 
go read and study Philemon. Go watch the Bible Project video on Philemon. It is incredible. What, what's Paul doing here? He's slowly deconstructing the old system of slavery that the Greco-Roman Empire was built upon. But he's not doing this by, by imploding it with this explosive thing. He's doing it from the inside out. He's appealing to the new culture and DNA we have of being raised with Christ. He says, Philemon, don't bring Onesimus back as a slave, but as a brother. I mean, it is, and again, for us, for us, it's like, well, that makes sense. You should do that. But I want you to understand how subversive that would have been, how offensive that would have been to someone who was outside of Christ in those ancient days. And so when Paul is, is describing these relationships and he encourages slaves, says, you can work in such a way, that's not for just eye service, but you can work from your heart as unto the Lord. He's speaking to literal people sitting in that room in, in the Colossian church, but he's also speaking to slave owners who, who are going to read Philemon's letter. And what he's saying is he's appealing to their new identity, their new heart and saying, these people aren't your property. These people are your brothers. Which is why I think as much as, as Paul is rearranging our idea of husband and wife, he is slowly and methodically abolishing the role of slavery within the kingdom of God. It cannot exist. And so as the people of God, we continue that work. This is why we join with organizations like uh, Generate Hope that is actively working to abolish modern day slavery. Why? Because of the Bible. Because it doesn't fit within God's kingdom. And I would encourage you to, to look in ways that we can join in with God and His work of undoing and deconstructing the old system. We have a new system now. And in the kingdom of God, people are treated with the dignity that is belonging to them because of the Imago Dei. Fourthly, is your attitude the rewarding promise of the gospel. And so while the kingdom of God is slowly deconstructing the old system, what's our attitude in the meantime? Want, listen to these verses. Whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Verse 23, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord. Also, it says, you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. So what do we do when we're in a broken system, when we have a poor work environment, when our marriage is struggling? Well, you change your heart while you're trusting God and participating with God and changing the system. You allow God to work within you in those environments because of a couple of things. Number one, there is a reward waiting. What great news for people in the ancient world who were slaves. Listen, you might not see it on this end, but God sees everything and there is a reward waiting. And all he asks for is that your heart would not be working towards someone who might not deserve it. Just work for the Lord. And what this heart posture, this attitude do is it eventually led towards the revolution within the ancient world because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so again, I just want to remind us of those four things. Remember the audience. 
the contextual nature of this good news. Remember a commendation that sometimes there is a missional nature to what we do so the gospel can gain a hearing. Number three, there is an abolition that's going on, an uprooting of things. And sometimes it may take longer, but it does not mean it is not happening. It does not mean that we should not participate in the abolition of things that are evil and wicked and against the Imago Dei, like slavery and racism, like objectification of women, these things that need to be at the forefront of the church because this does not fit within the kingdom of God. And lastly, what we can control while we are underneath broken systems is our attitude, our heart posture working towards the Lord, welcoming Him, uh, to to remind us of the reward. So three questions as we end. Three application questions. Number one, what heart posture needs renewal in your own life? Is it within, if you're married, within your marriage? Is it towards your boss? Are you feeling like, man, that person doesn't deserve that? I would encourage you, do, do we need to work unto the Lord, not unto people? Do we need to remember our reward is in heaven? What heart posture needs renewal? Number two, in the process of fighting for freedom, of deconstructing broken systems of our world, have we allowed our own bondage in our life, sin in our life to perpetuate? Because God doesn't want either or, He wants both. Which leads to the last question. In the process of finding personal freedom and personal salvation, have we stopped fighting the good fight of breaking down the sinful structures of our world. Again, we need both. Our heart needs change. Our relationships need to change. And the sinful structures in our world need to change. And we need the Holy Spirit to help us do that. Let me pray. Father, we take time in this passage. It's hard to digest. But God, in the middle of it, we actually see beauty. Lord, we see the dignity of women raised, Lord Jesus. We see the dignity of people um, who belong to to broken systems of the world, of slavery and segregation, Lord God, of these things. We see you undoing that. And Lord, at the same time, we see you bringing renewal in our hearts. So Lord, I'm just asking, Lord Jesus, that you would help us fight the good fight of faith, both externally and internally. Lord, we ask for a renewal of the heart, a renewal of our world, Lord Jesus. Let our church be your agent of change. Holy Spirit, empower us. Lord, we love you so much in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for joining us here at the Light San Diego podcast. This sermon was recorded in Encinitas, California. For more information, please visit our website, lightsandiego.com.